All right, this morning we're going to be in Psalm 102. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. If you would like a copy of that, don't have one, there's a take-home Bible in the pew in front of you. You know, I've I've always really liked stories, and and stories kind of, uh, we do them every night, and and I kind of get tired of reading the same story uh, over and over again. Uh, Bryce probably doesn't get tired of hearing the same story over and over again. But frequently he'll come to me and say, Dad, can you tell me a story? And I don't have a book anywhere near me, and so I just make up stories. And so last night, if you were with us, we kind of our family tradition is we go and get hot chocolate, we come to the live nativity, and then we, we go down Park Street and we drive really, really slowly. I mean, you think the horse-drawn carriages are slow. Those things are passing us, like blazing past us. And, and so we're on the way home last night, and Bryce says, Dad, tell me a story. Well, I'm driving, so I can't whip out the storybook. I said, Bryce, let me tell you the story about Jethro, the flying squirrel from Mississippi. And uh, anyway, and so we, we tell this story, but what we find in, in the book of Psalms, we don't, we don't find stories, but what we find are emotional responses and reports to what God is doing and what he's demonstrating. And Psalm 102 perfectly illustrates, it perfectly demonstrates the, the course and tenor of most of our lives. We go from misery to elation. And, but what he's discussing there is, is what's taken place for an entire nation of people. An entire nation of people has been uh, relocated into Babylon. They've been stripped from their homeland. They've been relocated. And they're bemoaning that fact. They're talking about how terrible things are where they're at. And they're asking God to intercede. And that's what we're going to see. But it, it, it really it moves in two parts. 1 through 11, it's just, it's just kind of woe and anguish. But we see this amazing thing happen in verse 12, verse 12 where the whole thing changes. So for the first part this morning, I want us to focus our attention and our energy on 1 through 11. Look here at the first two verses. The Psalms is obviously from a point of pain and anguish. says these words, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Don't hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily when I call. Well, we catch a couple of things from that. Imagine having everything taken away from you, your homeland, losing everything, moving to a foreign context and being held there against your will. Everybody you know has had the same thing happen to them, and and so you're struggling, and anguish has kind of come upon you. And, And where can you turn? Where can you turn to get an answer to the the problem and the plight of your situation? Where can you turn for alleviation when the Psalms just nails it for him? He gets it right for us in the midst of great distress, incredible turmoil. There's only one place to turn. Man, it's not our best friend. It's it's not posting some anonymous deal on Facebook saying, man, my day is terrible. It's awful. Can anybody fix it? And you're just waiting for all these people to write, girl, you're so good. Or guy, you're so good. Things are going to get better. You're just the greatest mom, dad, best friend, cousin, neighbor, person that I don't even know, and I'm creeping on your Facebook page ever. But look, what do they do? They say, hear my prayer, or let my cry come to you. Unashamedly, they're not posturing before God, demonstrating to God some sense of, of solidarity and inner strength. But what they recognize is their own inability to overcome the difficulty in their life. What they recognize is their complete and utter dependence upon God. And what follows is an incredibly passionate and honest plea. I mean, look how they lead into verse 2. Don't hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. 
Answer me speedily in the day when I call. They're asking out of a sense of urgency that God would lean in. That God not be far off. That not, God not be distant from them. That God lean in as I am towards Steve. But in that, in that request, it's not this tentative hope where, where, I, where they go and they say, God, if you're not too busy, would you, would you give me your ear? God, if you're not too busy, if you're not too preoccupied, can I have just a few seconds of your time? They're they're presupposing that God is inclined with love towards them and that he will respond to them in kind. And so they ask with this tremendous sense of confidence, and that doesn't dismiss the distress. But it shows that even in the midst of distress, they recognize that God is a God who would hear and who could move and who could radically transform their reality. Now let's look and see just how bad these things are for the psalmist. When 3 and 4, he says, My days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. He says, the psalmist realized what so many of us pick up on. Our lives are passing through our hands like water. We try in, in vanity and in vain to hold on to our lives, and we, just, we can't stop the passage of time. We can't stop the ravages of time. We, we can't stop all these things that are passing. And the way he describes them, he says, my days are like smoke. My days pass away like smoke. Now, fire is impressive. And from a child, I've always been impressed, although I've listened to my parents, and I haven't touched it without their permission. No, but there are a lot of children in here, so you've got to propagate those types of myths. Smoke comes from fire, but it's passing. It goes up into the sky. It dissipates quickly. And we don't look and say, man, that's some impressive smoke. We say, that's an impressive fire. What this guy describes in his life is this suddenly passing smoke. His life is just fading away. He says, my heart is struck down like grass and is withered. Forget to eat my bread. He is so depressed. He is so distressed. He's so forlorn in the midst of his suffering He forgets to eat. Wakes up in the morning or gets out of bed in the morning and and kind of stumbles around and, I'm just not hungry. Time comes to eat some lunch. He kind of thinks, he says, I don't have any appetite. Dinner rolls around and he's so preoccupied with his distress, he's so preoccupied with his suffering that he can't bring himself to eat. Is this not how so many of us Suffer through life. Too many people in our community are struggling so much. Be it divorce, be it financial struggle, be it loss in their family, and they're struggling to make it, but they're so preoccupied with their depression that they can't even remember to eat. This is how bad it is for this person. He says, my heart is struck down like grass and is withered. He is literally passing out and fading away. Now look here in verse 5. He says, Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. This person has forgotten to eat for so long that now he is emaciated. He is skin and bones. And, and, and in the midst of that, you begin to think, you begin to ask yourself the question, where is the hope for this person? Where is the deliverance? Where is the end of the suffering? In the midst of being so overcome with suffering, in the midst of being so overcome with depression, that they forget to eat and now they're fading away to nothing. They see their life passing before them. 
And this is nothing but smoke. Hmm. Look at the extent in verse 6 and 7. He says, I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. And what he's getting at there isn't, isn't the fact that he's a junior bird watcher and he's describing what he does with his free time. What he's describing is the most lonely creature he can imagine in the most desolate place he can conceive. You see, he's not going in and saying, I'm like an eagle soaring on the winds, overcoming with victory. What he says and said, I'm this lonely, tawny bird that lives with no friends in the middle of nowhere, with no way to survive. This is the loneliness. This is the despair that he's facing. Where does hope come from this person? Where can relief come for this person? He says, I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. So overcome with grief, he can't eat. So overcome with grief, he's wasting away. Surrounded by no friends. So overcome with grief, now sleep has been robbed from it. Where can relief come for this person now look here there are other people verse 8 he says all all the day my enemies taunt me those who deride me use my name for a curse well that's not very comforting somebody comes to you and says patty do you have any friends she's like no i don't have any friends we say well patty i see all these people gathered around you surely they're friendly she says these people these people all they're doing is they've taken my name and they said look you don't want to be patty do you that sounds awkward anyway. But you don't, want, you don't want your life to be like her. Her life is all misery and woe. This person and all those that surround them recognize that something is wrong. And so they're, they're, they're despairing. They're struggling. He says, my enemies taunt me all day long. All day long, people come to this person. And likely, the question asked of them is, where is your God? Where is your deliverance? I think of the story of Job who had the the friends that no one wants and they come to him when things are going terrible for him and they say, oh, this is clearly your fault, Job. And Job gives this recount of his righteousness before his friends and they say, no, 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 this can't be. Surely all these things are your fault. These people aren't looking for the Psalms' best interest. Instead, they come to him, they taunt him, they ask him the same question he asks of himself. Where is your deliverance? They've made his name into a curse. Now look here at nine. He says, I eat my ashes like bread and mingle my tears with drink. This gives us a picture of him laid out on the ground, his body sprinkled with ashes, people throwing food to him, and the only thing he is able to ingest are the ashes that cover his body. Every time he or she goes to take a sip, tears flood into their cup over and over again. This is the great sadness. This is the great despair that we read here. And the question comes to them again and again, where is the hope? Where is the freedom? Where is the release? Look at verse 10. The first time in this passage, he moves from the the, the I and, and the my, and he talks about God here, and he says, but God, because of your indignation and anger for you have taken me up and thrown me down. Now, for whatever reason, and, and it, this person is struggling in the midst of this, this desolation and life in Babylon to a tremendous degree when this is recorded. 
And what we see in there is they recognize that the people of Israel have been relocated because of their sin and their refusal to follow God. Now that's not always the case with you and I. Sometimes we just experience tremendous depression. And, and you search your life and you're looking internally and you're asking people around you, you say, what unrighteous deed is in me? What unrighteous thing have I done? What way am I living my life that's not pleasing to God? You ask, in a very real sense, the same question of Job. And you come up and you wonder. This is how they feel. Like they've been taken up and thrown down. Like they are the chaff that's thrown up into the wind and the wind blows it away. Where's the hope? Where's the relief? Finally, look at verse 11. He says, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. His life is passing away. All his strength is vanished. He sees nothing but the end in sight. And the question that comes to us over and over again is where is the hope? Where is the relief? Where is the freedom? The question, the question asked over and over again is where is the hope, where is the freedom, where is the release? The answer is only in God's benevolent movement, which is ultimately realized in Jesus. There's this amazing thing that takes place in this psalm. One and two is the cry, is this heartfelt rend toward God. God, would you move? Would you hear me? Would you answer me, answer me speedily? Three through 11 lays it out. He says, look, God, I'm not posturing before you. Life is terrible. Everybody around me wants bad for me. In fact, the only company I have are the people taunting me, saying awful things about me, using my name as a byword and a curse. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I've got no relief. I'm fading away. It's like my life is just smoke. It's just water passing through my hands. I can't control any of this. God, lest you move. God, lest you do something. God, lest you change the course that I'm headed down. So verse 12 shows up, and it's the most amazing thing. We read in verse 12, he says, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You see, verse 11 said that that his days are like an evening shadow. These things are passing away. These things are quickly coming to an end. But he looks at himself, and he looks at God. He says, I am passing away, but God, you are enthroned forever. Now, this gives us an indication about something. See, it's not that he just says, God, you live forever. God, you abide forever. God, your days know no end. But he says, God, you are enthroned forever. See, the one he makes his request to. The one who he comes to and asks to move speedily, mightily. This one, he sits enthroned. This one, he reigns as king. This one, he has authority to affect change. This one, he can radically do all of the bad things that are happening. This one, he can radically affect the destiny, the the trajectory, the way the life is moving for the one who's complaining. This God is enthroned forever. Furthermore, he says, you are remembered throughout all the generations. Now, this gives us an indication that he's remembered from eternity past, and he's remembered on into the future. This great God who's enthroned forever will be famous forever. Now, look here in 13 and 14. He says, you will arise and have pity on Zion. It is time to favor her. The appointed time has come. 
for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. What he's referring to is the destruction that took place in Jerusalem. Temple is is upended, the, the stones are knocked over, and he says, look, we hold dear the very stones that the temple is constructed by. We hold dear the dust that results from those rocks being smashed together. This is our reverence, our faithfulness to you. We recognize what was your presence in the temple. We hold reverence, we hold dear those things that it was made out of. And this is the surety, this is the promise, this is the hope and the confidence that he has in God. He says, you will arise and have pity on Zion. The picture is God reigning supreme from his throne. But when a king's going to act, he stands. And he comes forward. And he says, you will arise. This isn't blind hope. This isn't wishful thinking. This is a sure confidence. He says, you will arise. Now look here in 15 and 16, what will happen when the Lord arises? He says, nations will fear the name of the Lord and the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion, he appears in glory. What he points to is that God is a king who reigns supreme, who reigns over all. And what he says is, when you stand up and you begin to deliver your people, when you begin to bring this person out of misery, out of despair, out of grief, people will see that and they will recognize who you are and they will fear you because of your act. And we recognize that to fear God is to know him. That the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And what he's describing here isn't just this panicked fear, but that the kings of the earth, when they see God move, would stand in reverential fear and awe. That they would be flabbergasted. They would recognize their utter impotence in the grand display of God's prominence, in the grand display of God's overwhelming strength. Because this God is enthroned forever. He sits as king over the universe eternally. And although they may not see it, those kings, they have lives too that are passing like smoke. Those kings, they have lives too whose shadow is coming to an end. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. The kings of the earth will fear your glory. He's calling for God's decisive action and movement. Now this is interesting. 15 and 16 are this tremendous display of power and majesty. That, that God gets up, that he is raising up a people, that he's returning a people. And that's, that's, that's amazing. That's a tremendous display. But what he shows in, six, in, in this next little section here in 17 is, is meant to highlight that. Look in 17, he says, He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. This same God who makes kings and nations quake. This same God who is able to bring back a people after 70 years in captivity. This same God who's able to exact amazing, tremendous displays of his power and might and majesty. This same God. When the poor and the destitute When the downtrodden come to him, he hears their prayer. See, it's one thing to have a sovereign who is all-powerful. 
This sovereign who is all-powerful, who moves in these amazing displays of power and might and comes through and just sets all wrong things right. He brings all people who would exalt themselves low. But what he does is he pictures this God who would move in those ways. But in verse 17, he says, He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. This God who is simultaneously moving to bring all those who exalt themselves low is moving to bring all those who are low to be exalted. This God who brings all those kings under an understanding of who he is as he displays himself in this tremendous movement of power even hears the lowly cry of the destitute. That's where the hope is. That's where the sure promise is. Now look here. He says, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. What he recognizes is, is the movement of God in his life, the movement of God in the nation of Israel to restore them, to restore him, should be a sign that when others read about it, when you and I hear about it, what it drives us to do is to praise God. We read about this, we hear about this, we see what he's done. What it causes us to do is stand back and to praise God, to honor God. Because we recognize the movement of God in the life of one who is low. Just as God has moved in our lives when we were low. Look what he says God did in 1920. That God looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked upon the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners. To set those free who were doomed to die. That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord. And in Jerusalem, his praise, when the peoples gather together, when the peoples gather together in the kingdoms to worship the Lord, God is creating for himself a people who would worship him. When God answers the prayer of the lowly, the prayer of the destitute, he's not just concerned with answering it, with righting the wrongs in their lives. What he's doing in answering that is setting aside for himself people who would worship him. So you look at your own life. You look at the own hurts that that you've had in your life. You look at the hurts that that you've gone through, that you've experienced, and you recognize as God moves you out of those things. He's not just doing it to enhance your life. He's doing it so that you might worship Him. He's doing it so you might glorify Him. He is creating for Himself a people who would worship Him. Now, there's this really troubling thing that happens in 23 and 24. It would be great for us if it ends there. It ends with this kind of anthem of praise right there in 22, does it not? God is moving us through this. He's, he's listened down. He's heard our prayer. He sees a king. He's bringing them low. He sees us low. He's lifting us high. He's making us worshipers. We're gathered around him. And then we read in 23 and 24 that God, that things are still bad. That things are still bad. This is perplexing. This is troubling. This is the thing that in my study this week, I thought, I wonder if they'll notice if I just, you know, we could put all the verses on the screen and we just skip this one. Some of you are great readers. Some of you are not. So some of you would get that and some of you wouldn't. And then at lunch, you would talk. You would converse. The ones that didn't get it would say, he skipped that. The ones that you can't read and say, they didn't skip anything. And then there would be disunity in your home. People are taking presents back. And so I decided, you know what? We'll just go through it. Some of you forgot to buy gift receipts anyway. <clears throat> So look, in 23 and 24, in the midst of this proclaimed deliverance of God, in the midst of his understanding that God will move, he will restore Zion, in the midst of all these things, that God is building for himself a group of people who would worship him, who would rightly be declared and understood as worshipers. 
He says, he's broken my strength in mid-course. He's shortened my days. He cries out to God in one and two. He lays his plight or his situation before God in three through 11. And then in 12 through 22, he talks about how God can be counted on and how he knows God is going to move to restore him. But you see, our lives aren't a simple story. It's not that you're born, you go through a little bit of difficulty, and then the rest of your life is just great. Over the course of your life, you will continue to experience heartache. Over the course of your marriage, you will have days where you and your spouse get along and you're the greatest thing ever and and Dennis Rainey is likely going to call you on Wednesday and say, hey, can you give me some notes? I've got a marriage seminar coming up and and, and the the Tripp brothers are going to call you and say, look, we want to do a marriage seminar. We've heard you guys are having a particularly stunning week. Congrats. Can we get some notes so we can put those things down? We've got a book we're going to write. Would you write the foreword? Some of you are going to have weeks like that in your marriage. Some of you, it's been so long since you've had a week like that that you begin to think that those weeks don't exist. That your marriage has has been kind of circling the drain and, and on cruise control and you're like, maybe if I just don't touch it, it'll hold together. Some of your lives are a series of successes and failures. But you know what 23 and 24 gives us a picture of? That even in the midst of these setbacks and these difficulties along the life of faith, God is still faithful. He says, look, my days are, be cutting, are, are going to be cut short. And so what does he do? He doesn't bemoan that fact. Instead, he renews his call. He says, I say, take not away in the midst of my days. God, don't let this be the end. He asks again, relief. And what does he base this relief on? He bases his relief on the sure promise that God is the one who can endure. God is the one who does endure. God is the one who is everlasting. He says, God, take me not away in the midst of my days. He says, because Lord, you are the one whose years endure throughout all generations. And look what he does in 25. He begins to describe creation. Creation, it's that thing that you and I walked out on this morning. Terra firma. It's it's, it's the fact that that when I walk out of my front door, the ground doesn't collapse below me, or at least that's my hope. I don't live in Florida, so that's a decent surety that I have. He says, you laid the foundations of the earth from old, and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you will remain. See, even those things that you and I look around visibly, and we say, this is permanent. This is sure. This is steadfast. He says all of these things are passing away. Now we look at mountains, we look at mighty rivers, we look at the ocean, and our tendency, our temptation is to say these things will endure. They will stand the test of time. But what the Psalms gives us here, friends, is even those things that we're tempted to look at and say this thing is sure, this thing is permanent, that all of these things are passing, and in the eyes of God, are fleeting in but a moment. He says in 26, they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. 
The children of your servant shall dwell secure because your offspring shall be established before you. The sure promises of God are able to be counted upon because we have a God who endures. The sure promises of God moving to deliver his people can be counted on because he is a God from everlasting to everlasting. But we ask ourselves the question, what does this look like in my life? What does this psalm say to me? You know the amazing thing, and, and at Christmas time, everybody gets gets just kind of ooey and, and squishy, and, and and they recognize and they celebrate this nativity scene, much like this one. And so they skip ahead to that, but what we recognize is that in creation, God had this amazing display of his power. He spoke, and it all came to be. And the, and, the, and the height of his creation was he created a man and a woman. He created humanity in his likeness, in, in his image. And he declared that it was good, and they had perfect harmony and relationship with God, and they communed with God, and he moved in the garden, and they heard him. And do you know what they did? They rebelled. They chose their way and their wisdom over God and what he knew was best for them. And in that, everything became woe and misery. Sin entered the world through Adam, and all have fallen through him. And in that, then, all of creation cried out, much like the Psalms did, God, come near to us. God, heal us. God, restore us. And in the coming birth of Jesus Christ, in the most unassuming, inconceivable, confusing at times way, God began to exact cosmic change for all humanity. See, all of humanity is is headed towards hell because of sin and death. And God, in the virgin birth and the nativity, came near to humanity. He came near to humanity and he began to write our story. He began to write our trajectory. He began to write the whole course of where all of humanity is heading. But it's not just in this baby. It's not just that Jesus came and people said, He is the most beautiful baby in the world. He's going to redeem everybody everywhere. Glory be the beautiful baby. It's not that the people from Pampers came in and said, you know, we in Judea have gotten together and we want to put together an ad campaign and Jesus of Nazareth is the most beautiful baby ever. We took a vote in Bethlehem. We've decided that Jesus, this beautiful baby, is the most beautiful everywhere. His diapers don't stink. He doesn't cry. He's amazing. Can we get him out on the ad campaign? That would be pretty weird. God sent Jesus in the most amazing way. He sent him as an innocent child. And he grew up and he called followers to come and to follow him, to surrender their lives to God, to make him their utmost, not to make themselves and their desires utmost. And as he was doing that, he was changing our destiny. He was changing the destiny of all mankind. Jesus coming is the verse 12 of our lives. But this is what we recognize. In Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, and verses 4 through 7, we read, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were mired in disbelief, even when we were living out our selfishness and our pride and our lust, even while we were living our lives for our own enjoyment, even in the midst of this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. Look at this. He says, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All of our lives were stuck in 3 through 11. We were mired in sin and disbelief. We were lost with no hope. But all of our lives were afforded an opportunity for great change. And God, hearing the cry of his people, him coming near them in the person of Jesus, and then in Jesus surrendering his life, offering up his life as a perfect sacrifice to God, as a forgiving sacrifice and an atoning statement for all of humanity, all who would believe in Jesus. So as we think about the story of our lives, some of you are stuck in this this cycle of woe and misery. And you've tried to do everything you can to change the direction and the manner of your life. What Scripture tells us, what the Bible tells us, is that no person can change the direction of their lives but that God extends to humanity through Jesus an opportunity for forgiveness, an opportunity for salvation. Friends, you can't change the direction of your life, but we serve a God who endures, who sits enthroned in heaven, who leans in close and hears the cry of his people, and who comes and answers. And this God, if you would cry out to him, he will hear And he will move in salvation. Let me pray for us.